Well, let's go ahead and open up our Bibles to Jonah chapter 1. Excuse me, I got a little bit of a cold working through, so bear with me this morning, but page 774 uh, in a Blue Pew Bible. And just before we get going there, a little bit of an update on uh, Mega Sports registration. Uh, if you've been here in recent weeks, we've talked about Mega Sports. It's our church's uh, VBS program that we put on every July. A lot of kids in the church, a lot, even more kids just in the community that come to that. And if you'd seen a lot of the announcements on the video of Megan saying, uh, May 15th, noon, you got to sign up quickly because, and we were saying last year, it was under an hour we got our 100 kids signed up. So we're ready to go. May 15th, I think it was Wednesday, noon, registration opens, registration closes at 12.09. 100 kids signed up in nine minutes, and that was, uh, and a lot of outside perspective, oh man, it's amazing, praise God, um, it's a nightmare, okay, <laughs> for everybody who's uh, on the internal side, because of course there's some system errors and some people are not be able to get in, and then you're fumbling, and then all of a sudden it's closed. And so, um, and, and when you have a children's director who's supposed to not be going too hard because of high blood pressure, all right, mega sports registration is not the remedy that she needed that week. So, um, all that to say, uh, it did fill up quickly. We do have uh, kind of a, I think by 12.30, there was a waiting list of 50. Um, so like we're, we're gonna now in the process of trying to see how many of that waiting list we can kind of fit in, especially amongst kids at Grace. And so um, uh, do not email Megan about it. Uh, do not put her in labor. Um, Monica Wolf is the kind of mega sports coordinator uh, who's handling a lot of that. She's been great this week and will kind of moving forward be uh, the point contact for that. So anything related to registration you'll see online or uh, that her, her email for that. But uh, we are excited for that. We're excited for that, what that's going to be. And then another thing that Megan wanted me to pass along, if you were a person who said, hey, if you guys need help at Mega Sports, um, the answer is yes. Okay, so if you were on the fence and kind of waiting for a year back, here's your word. Yes, we would love to. If you were even thinking maybe you weren't going to, uh, the more volunteers we get, the more people off that waiting list we can just kind of get into the building safely. So whether that's sports or huddles, um, definitely uh, mark that in a connection card. Send Monica an email, and we'd love to have you part of our team. So, well, this morning uh, we are going to finish chapter one in Jonah, and I'm looking forward to walking through this passage because this passage is the one that has surprised me more than any other in the book of Jonah. I think it's the most overlooked and most underrated 10 verses in this short book. Because if we, again, did a word association, I say Jonah, you say, you, you're saying, you say, well, we're going Nineveh maybe, uh, running away, that's two words. Um, but very few people would ever think about the sailors in the book of Jonah. And if you did think about the sailors and were kind of hard-pressed to kind of say, well, say something about them, it's probably just, well, well, they threw Jonah overboard. That's their role in the book of Jonah. And that's true, but that's very incomplete. And what I hope you will see this morning is what I have seen these past few weeks is that this group of sailors will both challenge us and encourage us in the church in 2019. And we're going to see that in that order. We're going to be challenged this morning. And praise God, we're going to be encouraged through the story of the sailors. So if you are just joining us, we are preaching through the book of Jonah. I can quickly recap what's happened because it's only been two weeks and we've only seen six verses. Uh, so we're going to start picking up the pace. But um, the year is around somewhere around 750 B.C. 
God calls upon his prophet, a guy he's called upon in the past. He does it now again, this man named Jonah, to go to a city outside of Israel's border, border a city called Nineveh, to proclaim the word of God and call them to repentance. So, so far, so good, but it's a little bit different than your normal prophet story in the Bible because Nineveh, again, is not in Israel, but not only that, it's the capital of the powerful Assyrian Empire, which happens to be Israel's biggest threat to freedom. So Jonah hears this call, says, thank you, Lord, but no thanks. And not only does he say no, he really says no because he flees in the opposite direction. He does not even want this to be a possibility for him. And he gets onto a boat, and it's headed to a faraway city, hoping to go to the middle of nowhere. But God, in his relentless grace, does not allow his people to run without pursuit. And so he sovereignly sends a storm upon the boat. And we spoke about this storm last week, the beginning of it, and kind of the idea of the storms of our lives and, and storms that lead to suffering and, and whether it's like we're in a situation where we're like Jonah and we're responsible for the storm that we're currently in or we're the sailors who get caught up in the same storm even though they are not to blame. God's purpose is the same, that God either sends or allows trials in our life as a means of grace. It's a hard word. But he sends trials and or allows them as a means of grace in order to draw people near to himself. So that's what we saw last week. And in the first two weeks, Jonah has kind of loomed large in this story. And he'll be in the story today, but he's going to take a little bit of a back seat. And these sailors are going to kind of come into the spotlight. And again, it's going to challenge us and it's going to encourage us. And so let's read the whole passage up front. Starting in verse 7 of chapter 1, we're going to take it to the end of the chapter, verse 17. And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from, and what is your country, and what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. And they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. And then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Verse 17. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This, these verses, like the whole story of Jonah, is pretty simple to track. 
Sailors are terrified. They find out it's because of Jonah. They throw him overboard. The storm stops. And then that sets up the really popular and well-known part of the story, Jonah and this whale, which we will see next week. But these 10 verses, they're going to tell us three different relationships. It's almost like the camera is going to span to three different uh, kind of dynamics and relationships within a single story. There's sailors in Jonah. There's the sailors in God. And at the very end, we will briefly start the third, which will continue into next week, Jonah and God. So those are the three relationships. That's where we're going. Number one, the sailors and Jonah. Again, I think the most overlooked relationship in this book, and it's this kind of fascinating exchange between God's prophet, his chosen person, and these quote-unquote outsiders, because these sailors, remember, are not Jewish. They're from the city of Joppa. They are most likely Phoenicians who live in what today we know as the northern region of Lebanon. They're of Canaanite descent. Their people have been there even before the Jewish people went into the promised land. They're an established coastal people, and the Phoenicians were known for their presence on the water. Experienced shipmen, and I am sure they have seen their fair share of storms. And yet, they recognize right out of the gate, this is not your average storm. It is raging all around them. They are in panic mode. They are hurling cargo off the side of the boat to lighten it, to keep it from sinking. And then they're each praying to their own gods. We saw that last week. Uh, Phoenicians, very polyistic culture. So they decide, okay, each person, pick your god. Let's go. And it's telling that when the captain went down to wake up Jonah... He didn't say, Jonah, we need your muscles to throw cargo off the ship. What did they tell Jonah they needed? They said, you need to pray to your God. We're praying to our gods. We need you to pray to your God because we need to cover all of our bases and get as many gods involved as we can. And notice the irony in all of this. Jonah was originally called by God to go point the pagans to himself. And he refused. And now God is using the pagans to go point Jonah to himself. Jonah refuses to share the good news with the people in Nineveh, so he goes in the opposite direction, and yet what does he find himself still surrounded by? Pagans, people who don't know God. Like, that had to be a strange moment for Jonah as he was waking up, that feeling like you're kind of just waking up out of your sleep. Where am I? Who am I? What's going on? And you have these people pointing him to do the same thing that he was supposed to be doing, who don't know God. Had to be a strange moment for Jonah. But even notice, he still doesn't give them any information. Whatever happened in that kind of wake-up exchange, he does not give them their information they're looking for, even though he knows full well why this storm is here. And so the the, the sailors decide to go to plan B. They're going to cast lots. Their ship is going down, but they take the time to cast lots to try and figure out who's responsible here. Again, interesting. Seasoned sailors seen their share of storms. They intuitively know this is not normal. Someone must be punished for this. Some some God must be angry. We got to figure out who it is. We got to get to the bottom of this. And so so they begin casting lots. And and casting lots, it's this phrase um, 
a very common ancient practice, and it's actually seen all throughout the scriptures as well as other ancient literature. But here's the thing. Nobody actually knows what casting lots was. Like, what did they do? And I've read different theories and ideas, and some are including these rocks, and others are including these sticks. Um, And, okay, maybe that could make sense, but the reality is nobody knows. But something happened, some process, where an object would land on someone. So it could be anything. They could have been doing any, mini, miny, mo for all we know. I mean, some, I think that would just be simpler for them to do that than rocks and things. But whatever they did, they did a process that landed squarely on somebody. But the important piece for us to note is that God, God is sovereign over even the things that we think are left to chance. There is no random in the world. There is no coincidence. There is no such thing as luck, as much as we often try to ascribe things to luck, to either alleviate blame from ourselves, it's just bad luck, or to give yourself credit, I'm just having to run a good luck. There is no luck when you have a sovereign God who's overseeing all things and controls all things. Behold our God saying it this morning. And the sovereignty of God looms large. It's this kind of overarching, like God doesn't speak a lot in Jonah, but he is all over it, appointing things, anointing things, steering, controlling to bring about his purposes. He brought the storm. It was in control of that. And now with the casting of lots, he can direct it wherever he wants. And so it lands rightly on Jonah. And it leads to a barrage of rapid-fire questions from the sailors to Jonah. Tell us what's happening. What do you do? Where do you come from? Who's your God? What people are you? You notice they're all questions of identity. How do you see yourself? And they're not doing this in a casual, small-talk conversation. Let's get to know the new guy on the boat. But they want to know in desperation, in anger, what kind of mess are they in? Because if they can figure out what kind of mess they're in and who this person is, maybe we can get out of it. But it shows us how mankind is always looking to label others. We very much like to and want to categorize one another because if we can rightly categorize one another, we think we figure them out. So think about with me, when was the last time you met somebody new? had a legitimate conversation with somebody that you were meeting for the first time. Maybe it was here at church. Maybe it was at work. Maybe it was on a first date. Maybe somebody moved to your neighborhood. Maybe your daughter has a new boyfriend. And you're having this conversation of trying to figure them out. Do you remember what kind of questions you asked them? What do you ask somebody when you want to get to know them? You ask them identity questions. Say the most common one, especially amongst men. What do you do? What do you do? Where do you come from? Do you have a family? And they're not bad questions. I I ask these questions, but, but based on what we ask, it exposes something about us. What do we think matters most about this person? And we want to try to get to the bottom of it. Because based upon the answers to these identity questions, we begin to form opinions. And we think to 
uh, we begin to have assumptions about them, and we make conclusions, either fairly or unfairly, about who they are based upon what they say. Because we have this kind of innate desire, we want to categorize people. Are they rich or poor? White or black? Republican or Democrat? You pro-choice or pro-life? You a Christian or agnostic? You single or married? Kids? No kids? Because we view other people in this way, and we make assumptions about them and conclusions about them, and then innately, we also define ourselves by those same aspects of identity because we care about them. We think other people care that about us, and so we want to be very careful with how we filter our answers. And Jonah's response is really telling. I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Do you see how he starts? What's the first thing Jonah says about himself? His ethnicity. I'm a Hebrew. I'm an Israelite because Jonah's ethnicity is the foundation of his own identity and how he sees himself. And this begins to make sense because the very reason he refused to go to Nineveh is that they were not like him. He did not want them to get the good news. He did not want God to extend his grace on them because Nineveh is in Assyria, not Israel. And they are not one of us. And Jonah creates this divide. I'm a Hebrew. And it's a divide he's not willing or wanting to cross. And, and, and then he speaks of the Lord, but it's very interesting what he says about the Lord. He says, I fear the Lord. Oh, really? It's a different kind of fear now. It's not a fear that leads to obedience and respect and reverence and awe for who God is. Now it's I'm trying to get away from him. And his actions are speaking against the very opposite of what he claims to say and believe. But then almost reluctantly, he kind of rightly locates God as this creator of all things. He uses from very choice words, including the sea and the dry land which is important because these sailors would love to see some dry land right about now. But Jonah doesn't necessarily have a change of heart here, not yet. First, he doesn't repent of his disobedience. He actually goes on to say to the sailors, hey, if you guys want this to end, you're going to have to do it. You have to throw me overboard. And it's this lack of compassion that we've seen in Jonah, and we see it again, because he could have, in that moment, I imagine, repented of his sin, and the storm would have stopped. I presume he also could have thrown himself overboard, I mean, if that's what we're after, but no, he says, this is what's going on, and you guys are going to have to do it. And the sailors, they actually won't do it at first. They, their ship is sinking, but they go, we can't just throw you overboard. We just met you. And so they keep rowing. You see, they rowed harder, and the storm even gets more fierce. But let us see. These pagans who don't know the Lord are showing more compassion for Jonah than Jonah, as God's chosen prophet, has shown for them. Until at last, they are out of options 
and they take Jonah, and they toss him. So before we look at the dynamic between now the sailors and God, here's just a couple things that I think will challenge us as a church that we need to lay down on top of our lives and confront. Um, one is the reality, maybe there's a few here, one is the reality that oftentimes non-Christians can act more like Christians than the Christians. And that's disappointing to see. And yes, we have sin nature. Yes, we still live in that. We struggle against that. But how often do you see and kind of say that note is that I see these people acting this way and I see these people acting this way. They claim to know God and they don't care. And this is not adding up to me. And it's surely not adding up to the world. And a trap I need to be aware of and our church needs to be aware of, and our churches in America need to be aware of, is forming this us versus them mentality against the world. Because if we're not careful and we just kind of slide down that track, here's what happens. The world becomes this enemy we seek to defeat rather than the lost we seek to reach. I mean, just pick your cultural battle right now. There's a lot of them, and there's this mindset of we need to win this. This is getting out of control. What do we got to do to win? We got to defeat them. And our actions begin to show that, this lack of compassion. And, and, and so we have to find this tension of like, where can we stand on conviction and say the word of God says this, we believe this, but we still have compassion for people who might not believe like we believe. And that's hard, man. Like, that's not easy to like talk about from a text, but let's apply this. Yes, but like, that is hard to do on the ground. But the reason Jonah was not witnessing to Nineveh to begin with, the reason why he's not even really witnessing to the sailors here is not because he didn't know the answers. It's not that he didn't know enough, I'm nervous, what if they, what if they, what if they you know, trap me in my own argument, what if they uh, don't like me. The, the reason is not he didn't know enough, the reason is that he did not love enough. And I face that same challenge when it comes to living out of faith, sharing of faith, having boldness, having courage, having compassion, is that I'm not necessarily afraid because I'm nervous, but I can lack compassion for people who don't know Christ. And in the darkest area of my heart, I need to confront the fact that there are times where I'd actually rather them not believe because I don't want them to be like us. And there's certain situations and certain people where I just need to lay that down and repent of that, that God wants me to be a funnel of the relentless grace he showed me. And if the world is my enemy, and I begin just kind of walling myself off from them, I will never find this common ground that recognizes in many ways we're all in the same boat. We've all been made by the same God. We're all made in his image. We're all facing a lot of these storms together. And as fellow image bearers, we have the opportunity to lean into that common ground we have with other people in order to proclaim Christ and live Christ out in front of them, as opposed to only dwelling on the areas where we're different. And it's, I think, why so many churches care a lot about theology, which we should. There's a membership class after church. I'm going to talk a lot about theology. Here's where we stand. Here's our convictions but we can think about all the things that make us different. And if we're not careful, we're just not doing very much to actually help people, especially the most marginalized all around us. And it should be, and I want Grace Church to be strong in theology and never give that up like it's been for 73 years. 
and equally strong and loving people. And I don't want to feel like we have to choose between one or the other. I want our private faith to be of public good. And if it's not, maybe it's not real faith. Jonah said he feared God, but his actions of disobedience goes against the very things he says. And the sailors are the ones watching. And when Jesus told his disciples in Matthew 5 to let their light shine before others so they might see your good works and give glory to your Father in heaven, the assumption there is that the world is always watching. And they're watching to see how uh, what you live and how you live backs up what you say. So when I say I'm a Christian, I'd let that be known. If my actions constantly contradict that, not only do I make myself look bad, I make God look bad, and I make it harder for everybody else. And then lastly here, Jonah's, uh, between sailors and Jonah, Jonah's view of his own identity, it wasn't wrong, it was just a little misplaced. His ethnicity mattered more to him than his identity as being a child of God, a recipient of grace. And we should take note of that, that it, you can be proud, I can be proud to be an American. I can be proud to say my brother has done six tours in the Middle East defending our country and the freedom I have is because of men like him and so many others that come before us who have laid their lives down so that we can live free. I can be proud of that. I can be proud of being married I could be proud of, of having children, but if those things now go ahead of my identity as being a child of God, it becomes misplaced. Those things are awesome gifts. They make for terrible gods. And I want my foundational identity to be that I am a recipient of his grace, not because of anything I have done, but because he is good. And hopefully that leads to a sense of humility and compassion that works its way out. lot we can learn from these sailors. Second, we now see the relationship between sailors and God. So let's backtrack, uh, backtrack a little bit. Um, while the, uh, their, their kind of presence in the story is short-lived, you're never going to hear about the sailors after chapter one, it's, I think, very encouraging for us to see their story because it gives us the pathway of conversion. In 10 verses, we see a pathway of what does real conversion look like? The pathway from sinner to saved, from death to life, from an idolater to a worshiper, and we get to see it happen and unfold before our eyes. Because again, remember last week we were introduced to them as a pagan people who start from a place of self-sufficiency. They took off from Joppa as fully self-sufficient, in-control sailors, and they don't need a God. They will do it on their own. And even when they cry out to gods, plural, each their own God, they do that ultimately as a way to save themselves. So when you're not serving the one true God, capital G, all competing gods, lowercase g, are merely these kind of forces we can manipulate in order to serve us and give us what we want. And with all the complexities of this world, and this world is complex, the hope of salvation really boils down to two categories. There is salvation by works. There is salvation by grace. And the sailors go into this storm with a salvation by works mentality that they can do it on their own. They have what it takes to survive, 
They can handle life without help from the outside. Right? This is the mentality. It's my body. It's my mind. I'm the boss of me. I'll do it. I'll figure it out. This is my story, not your story. This is my life, not your life. Don't tell me what to do. It's kind of this individualistic culture where thousands of years later, things haven't really changed. And so when the storm hits, even though they're crying out to God, again, it's a means for them to survive. It's why time, in times of spiritual panic, many people will say, God, if you just get me out of this situation, how many times have we done it? God, just get me through this one thing, and I will be yours forever. I will sign my life to you. Situation comes, situation passes, and we go back to doing what we were doing before. It's a time of panic, reaching out for a spiritual realm. And so even what seems like a genuine cry to God, it's just a survival tactic. That the gods, if they're real, we'll just choose a bunch of them. If they're real, maybe they can be impressed or persuaded or manipulated to give us what we need. This is the lie of self-sufficiency. And today we might not have idols of God set up, set up in our basement. Maybe you do. But more often in our 21st century culture, we still have plenty of gods. We just refer to them as money and sex and power and fame. These idols that we think we can manipulate to bring us happiness and fulfillment and joy and meaning. And we can go to sleep at night fully convinced that we don't need a savior because we have ourselves and we can figure this out. This is the false gospel of our culture. This is the gospel of the world. And it actually, it's not a very fulfilling message. When you really think about it, it's a harsh message. Because if, you, if that's the gospel of the world that you're thinking under, and you're still feeling a little bit of emptiness, you know what that message tells you? you got to try harder. You're actually just not doing enough. You clearly aren't working hard enough, because if you were, you'd have more money. And you'd be working by now. Come on, everyone has a job out there. Get a job. You're just not working hard enough. That's the gospel of our culture. You clearly aren't trying hard enough because if you did, you'd have a spouse by now. You'd be in better shape. And it's what's so harsh about this culture and gospel that the world puts out. And, and you can even dress it up where it looks religious. You see, you're not happy enough because you're not doing enough for God. You're not showing up at church enough, and you're not praying enough, and you're not reading the Bible enough, and, you, and you're not giving enough money, and, and this can kind of bleed into the way we view ourselves, where we're even using religion to be a God that's not the true God. And the most important doctrine, it's really the only doctrine of the gospel of the world, is try harder. And it leads to either insufferable pride, where you are you have everything you want, and you think you're just killing it, and everybody else is just lazy. Or it leads to this debilitating dejection, because I'm failing, and I can only blame myself. And it seems like the sailors are kind of in the latter part of that, where they're in panic mode, because they're trying to do everything they can to save themselves, and it's just not looking good. And so they're hurling cargo off the ship, they're casting lots to figure out who to blame, and, and maybe they can figure it out from there. And then once it lands on Jonah, they interrogate him. We just saw Jonah's not necessarily the model evangelist there. But he did say enough. He tells them about God reluctantly, and that he's the creator of all things. And then verse 11's the key. 
of this passage from the sailor's point of view. It says, what do we do? What do we have to do? How can I make this right? To which Jonah says, well, you can't really do anything. You need a substitute to take the punishment for you. You got to toss me over. And to their credit, in a sense, they still don't buy it. Jonah says, toss me overboard. They go, nope, and they row harder. It says that in the text. They started rowing harder. Try harder. This is the doctrine of the world. Try harder. Digging in their heels, expecting a different result, to the point where they, tired physically, spiritually, emotionally, finally relent. And it's this beautiful picture where now they all cry out to God. You notice that? A few verses earlier, they each cry out to their own God separately. Now in unison, they cry out to the one true God together. And they say, let us not perish because of this one man's death. Have mercy on us. And Jonah's gone. But they moved from self-reliance to reliance upon the grace of God, and it changed them. And we get to see it from idolaters to worshipers, from physical to death to physical life, from spiritual death to spiritual life. And it's just this encouragement to us, because it's, if you were a believer, this happened to you. If you have people in your life who are not believers and you love them, you want this to happen to them. And God's relentless grace extends to all people from all backgrounds. And he is moving in this world, bringing people to this crossroads of death, of self, and a life of grace. We got to see a picture of it in Sharon's baptism. When anybody is baptized, that's why it's such an edification for the church to witness it. It's a picture, a physical picture for us. When she is immersed under the water, it's a picture of death to self. And that water was cold, man. Like that was a death to self. We got to figure that out. Um, and then she rises up out of the water. And it's this picture of a new life in Christ because of God's grace. It's a picture of the gospel. And once Jonah plunges underneath the water, the raging calm stops. And I'm so happy verse 16 was there. Because before we now shift gears to Jonah and the whale, we see their response. After the storm stopped, they didn't just revert back to where they were. Do you see what they did in verse 16? They were amazed at the Lord. They feared him exceedingly. They revered him for his power upon saving, him from, saving them from the storm. And they offered a sacrifice and made vows. It shows that their cry out to God was not hollow, but it was real. And they make vows to the Lord not so that God will save them, but they commit to the Lord because of what God already did do in saving them. And so here's, it's going to be a slide on the screen. Like, if there's one thing you just take away from this sermon, it's this. It's the distinction between the false gospel of the world and the true gospel. False gospel of the world says, if I do more for God, whatever that God might be in your life, then I will be accepted by God. And you just got to try harder, do more. But the true gospel reverses it, literally reverses it, that because of his grace, I'm accepted by God, and therefore I will live for God. 
It's the most important distinction to make in the Christian faith and the most misunderstood in the world today. And then lastly, and again, just a glimpse of this because we're going to pick it up next week, the third relationship, Jonah and God. The focus, the camera angle gets put back to this rebellious prophet and the Lord anoints a great fish to swallow him up. And up to this point, Jonah has just not been a great model for us to follow. But he did serve as the means of grace for the men to be truly saved on the boat. So here's God's providence in it all. Jonah was supposed to give a message. He did not give the message. So then Jonah is the message. By being thrown overboard in order to have other men saved. And praise God, God is not done with Jonah yet, which we will see But as we close, Jonah serves as a kind of type of something that's going to come down the road. He is a shadow of something greater. That this story conveys the need of a substitute we need for sin. That we cannot save ourselves. We need the sacrifice of another. Which gets us right to the heart of the gospel. Which is why in Matthew 12, Jesus answers a question of a Pharisee. A Pharisee comes and goes, Jesus, show us a sign, man. We we want to see a sign. Do something cool. And Jesus says, no more signs will be given except for the sign of Jonah. And he says, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. Referring to himself. That Jesus is the sacrifice. And Jesus has come to overcome the ultimate storm we will face, the storm of eternal death that is brought about by our own sin and rebellion. And Jesus being thrown into the world to go to the cross, to calm the storm of God's justice against sin, to be the sacrifice and to die so that those who place their faith in him may experience true peace from the storm. In a span of a few verses, we saw genuine conversion. And if I called anyone up here right now who calls himself a Christian, say, just share me, tell me your story, this is the pathway they will talk about. Almost all of us, it took a little bit longer than a few verses, amen? And and then details might look a little different, but at its course, it's the same. God, in his grace, brought me from a place of self-reliance to relying on the finished work of Jesus Christ. And if you have not made that decision, if you have not given that control up over your life, the message is not, you got to walk out these doors and try harder this week. It's not the message. The sailors tried it. It didn't work. The call on your life is to do what our sister Sharon explained to us in her story, to surrender and trust in God and hand it over to him. This is the ultimate meaning of Jonah chapter 1, that Jesus will calm the ultimate storm in your life because he took it upon himself so that you might have life. And with that truth, man, we can face the lesser storms in this world, which we will face in the here and now because our faith in him is secure. And again, he's quieted the only storm that can actually hurt you. So Jonah and these ragtag, unnamed sailors, even in their imperfections, point us to the finished, perfect work of Jesus Christ and God's relentless grace. Let's pray.